Section 10 of History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890 by Alexander and George Sutherland. New South Wales, 1838-1850 1. Gipps In 1838, when Governor Burke left Australia to spend the remainder of his life in the retirement of his native county in Ireland, he was succeeded in the government of New South Wales by Sir George Gipps, an officer who had recently gained distinction by his services in settling the affairs of Canada the new governor was a man of great ability generous and well-meaning but of a somewhat arbitrary nature no governor has ever laboured more assiduously for the welfare of his people and yet none has ever been more unpopular than gipps during his term of office the colonists were constantly suffering from troubles due in most instances to themselves but always attributed to others and as a rule to the governor it is true that the english government though actuated by a sincere desire to benefit and assist the rising community often aggravated these troubles by its crude and ill-informed efforts to alleviate them and as sir george gipps considered it his chief duty to obey literally and exactly all the orders sent out by his superiors in england however much he privately disapproved of them it was natural that he should receive much of the odium and derision attendant on these injudicious attempts but on the whole the troubles of the colony were due not so much to any fault of the governor or to any error of the english government as to the imprudence of the colonists themselves two monetary crisis during twelve years of unalloyed prosperity so many fortunes had been made that the road to wealth seemed securely opened to all who landed in the colony thus it became common for new arrivals to regard themselves on their first landing as already men of fortune and presuming on their anticipated wealth they often lived in an expensive and extravagant style very different from the prudent and abstemious life which can alone secure to the young colonist the success he hopes for in sydney the most profuse habits prevailed and in melbourne it seemed as if prosperity had turned the heads of the inhabitants the most expensive liquors were the ordinary beverages of wagoners and shepherds and on his visit to port philip in eighteen forty three governor gipps found the suburbs of melbourne thickly strewed with champagne bottles which seemed to him to tell a tale of extravagance and dissipation three land laws whilst many of the younger merchants were thus on their way to ruin and the great bulk of the community were kept impoverished by their habits the english government brought matters to a crisis by its injudicious interference with the land laws the early years of south australia and its period of trouble have been already described in eighteen forty 
South Australia was on the verge of bankruptcy, and the Wakefield policy of maintaining the land at a high price had not produced the results anticipated. Now many of the greatest men in England were in favor of the Wakefield theory, and in particular the Secretary of State for the Colonies, that is, the member of the British government whose duty it is to attend to colonial affairs, was a warm supporter of the views of Wakefield, so that when the people of South Australia complained that their scheme could not be successful so long as the other colonies charged so low a price for their land, he sympathized with them in their trouble. Who, they asked, will pay one pound an acre for land in South Australia, when, by crossing to Port Phillip, he can obtain land equally good at five shillings an acre. To prevent the total destruction of South Australia, the Secretary of State ordered the other colonies to charge a higher price for land. New South Wales was to be divided into three districts. One, the middle district, round Port Jackson, where land was never to be sold for less than twelve shillings an acre. Two, the northern district, round Moortown Bay, where the same price was to be charged. Three, the southern district, round Port Phillip, where the land was of superior quality and was never to be sold for less than one pound an acre. A great amount of discontent was caused throughout New South Wales by this order, but South Australia was saved from absolute ruin and the Secretary of State declined to recall the edict. In vain it was urged that a great part of the land was not worth more than two or three shillings an acre. The answer was that land was worth whatever people were willing to pay for it. For a time it seemed as if this view had been sound, and land was eagerly purchased, even at the advanced prices. In 1840, the amounts received from land sales were three times as great as those received in 1838. But this was mostly the result of speculation, and disastrous effects soon followed, for the prices paid by the purchasers were far above the real value of the land. If a man brought a thousand pounds into the colony and paid it to the government for a thousand acres of land, he reckoned himself to be still worth a thousand pounds, and the banks would be willing to lend him nearly a thousand pounds on the security of his purchase. But if he endeavored after a year or two to resell it, he would then discover its true value, and find he was, in reality, possessed of only two or three hundred pounds. Every purchaser had found the land to be of less value than he had expected. Everyone was anxious to sell, and, there being few buyers, most of it was sold at a ruinous price. Men who had borrowed money were unable to pay their debts and became insolvent. The banks who had lent them money were brought to the verge of ruin, and one of the oldest, the Bank of Australia, became bankrupt in 1843 and increased the confusion in monetary affairs. In order to pay their debts, the squatters were now forced to sell their sheep and cattle, but there was scarcely anyone willing to buy, and the market being glutted, the prices went down to such an extent that sheep, which two years before had been bought for thirty shillings, were gladly sold for eighteen pence. Indeed, 
a large flock was sold in sydney at sixpence per head fortunately it was discovered by mr o'brien a squatter living at yass that about six shillings worth of tallow could be obtained from each sheep by boiling it down and if this operation had not been extensively begun by many of the sheep owners they would without doubt have been completely ruined so great was the distress that in eighteen forty three the governor issued provisions at less than cost price in order to prevent the starvation of large numbers of the people yet the secretary of state in england knew nothing of all this and in eighteen forty three he raised the price of land still higher ordering that throughout all australia no land should be sold for less than one pound an acre four immigration it is not to be imagined however that the english government ever took to itself any of this land revenue every penny was used for the purpose of bringing immigrants into the colony agents in europe were appointed to select suitable persons who received what were called bounty orders any one who possessed an order of this kind received a free passage to sydney all expenses being paid by the colonial government with the money received from the sale of land the governor had the power of giving these orders to persons in new south wales who sent them home to their friends or relatives or to servants and laborers whom they wished to bring to the colonies now governor gipps imagined that the land would continue to bring in as much revenue every year as it did in eighteen forty and in the course of that year and the next gave bounty orders to the extent of nearly one million pounds but in eighteen forty one the land revenue fell to about one twentieth of what it had been in eighteen forty so that the colony must have become bankrupt had it not been that more than half of those who received bounty orders hearing of the unsettled state of the colony never made use of the permission granted governor gipps was blamed by the colonists and received from the secretary of state a letter of sharp rebuke as for the immigrants who did arrive in new south wales their prospects were not bright for a long time many of them found it impossible to obtain employment great numbers landed friendless and penniless in sydney and in a few weeks found themselves obliged to sleep in the parks or in the streets and but for the friendly exertions of a benevolent lady mrs chisholm who obtained employment at different times for about two thousand of them their position would indeed have been wretched mrs chisholm founded a home for defenceless and friendless girls of whom nearly six hundred were at one time living in sydney in destitution having been sent out from home with bounty orders under the impression that employment was certain whenever they might land at port jackson gradually the return of the colonists to habits of prudence and thrift removed the financial distress which had been the primary cause of all these troubles land ceased to be bought at the ruinously high rates and goods returned to their former prices five separation 
but these were not the only cares which pressed upon the mind of sir george gipps he was entrusted with the management of the eastern half of australia a region stretching from cape york to wilson's promontory there were it is true but one hundred fifty thousand inhabitants in the whole territory but the people were widely scattered and there were in reality two distinct settlements one consisting of one hundred twenty thousand people round sydney the other of thirty thousand round port philip the latter though small was vigorous and inclined to be discontented it was six hundred miles distant from the capital and the delays and inconveniences due to this fact caused it no little annoyance there was indeed a superintendent in melbourne and to him the control of the southern district was chiefly entrusted but mr latrobe was undecided and feeble though personally a most worthy man yet as a ruler he was much too timid and irresolute he seldom ventured to take any step on his own responsibility no matter how urgent the matter was he always waited for instructions from his superior the governor under these circumstances it was natural that the people of melbourne should wish for an independent governor who would have full power to settle promptly all local affairs in eighteen forty they held a meeting in a room at the top of the hill in burke street to petition for separation from new south wales but next year the sydney people held a meeting in the theatre to protest against it here then was another source of trouble to gipps for from this time the colony was divided into two parties eagerly and bitterly disputing on the separation question governor gipps and mr latrobe were not in favour of separation and by their opposition they incurred the deep dislike of the people of port philip the authorities at home however were somewhat inclined to favour the idea and as gipps was necessarily the medium of announcing their views to the colonists and carrying them into force he became unpopular with the sydney colonists also no man has ever occupied a more trying position and a somewhat overbearing temperament was not at all suited for smoothing away its difficulties six representative government in eighteen forty two a meeting was held in sydney to petition for representative government the british parliament saw its way clear to concede this privilege and in july eighteen forty three the first representatives elected by the people assembled in sydney the new council consisted of thirty-six members of whom twelve were either officials or persons nominated by the governor and the other twenty-four were elective it was the duty of this body to consult with the governor and to see that the legitimate wishes of the people were attended to six gentlemen were elected for port philip but residents of melbourne found it impossible to leave their business and go to live in sydney the people of port philip were therefore forced to elect sydney gentlemen to take charge of their interests however these did their duty excellently dr lang was especially active in the interests of his constituents and in the second session of the council during the year eighteen forty four 
he moved that a petition should be presented to the queen praying that the port phillip district should be separated from new south wales and formed into an independent colony the port phillip representatives together with the now famous robert lowe gave their support to the motion but there were nineteen votes against it and this effort was supposed to have been completely baffled but dr lang drew up a petition of his own which was signed by all the port phillip members and sent to england nothing further was heard on the subject for some time until sir george gipps received a letter from lord stanley the secretary of state directing him to lay the matter before the executive council in sydney and stating that in the opinion of the english government the request of port phillip was very fair and reasonable an inquiry was held the sydney council sent to england a report on the subject and received a reply to the effect that steps would at once be taken to obtain from the imperial parliament the required act the people of port phillip were overjoyed and in eighteen forty six gave a grand banquet to dr lang to celebrate the occasion but they were not destined to quite so speedy a consummation of their desires the english government which had given so favorable an ear to their petition was defeated and succeeded by another government to whom the whole question was new year after year passed away and the people of port phillip began to grow impatient and to complain loudly of their grievances first of all they complained that although it was a well-recognized principle that the money received by government for the waste lands of any district should be employed in bringing out emigrants to that district yet the sydney government used much of the money obtained from the sale of land in port phillip for the purpose of bringing out new colonists not to melbourne or geelong but to sydney itself and thus it was said the people of sydney were using the money of the port phillip district for their own advantage and again the people of melbourne complained that although they were allowed to elect six members of the legislative council yet this was merely a mockery because none of the port phillip residents could afford to live in sydney for five months every year and to neglect their own private business the former of these accusations seems so far as we can now determine to have been unfounded the latter was undoubtedly a practical grievance though more or less unavoidable in every system of representation seven earl grey for a year or two the english government forgot all about the separation question and in eighteen forty eight the wearied colonists at port phillip determined to call attention to their discontent accordingly when the elections for that year approached they determined not to elect any member so that the english government might see of how little use to them their supposed privilege really was it was agreed that no one should come forward for election and it seemed likely that there would be no election whatever when a gentleman named foster offered himself as a candidate this placed the non-election party in a dilemma for if they declined to vote at all and if mr foster could persuade only two or three of his friends to vote for him then since there was no other candidate he would be legally elected 
now at this time earl grey was secretary of state for the colonies and when someone proposed to nominate him for election in opposition to mr foster the idea was hailed as a happy one the non-election party could then vote for earl grey and he would be returned by a large majority but earl grey being an english nobleman and a member of the british government would certainly never go to sydney to attend a small colonial council so that there would be in reality no member elected but the attention of the secretary of state would be drawn to the desires of the district earl grey was triumphantly elected and when the news went home it caused some merriment he was jokingly asked in the house of lords when he would sail for sydney and for several weeks he underwent so much banter on the subject that his attention was fully aroused to the long-neglected question he weighed the matter carefully and resolving to do the people of port philip full justice sent out word that he would at once prepare a bill for the imperial parliament in order to obtain the necessary powers at the same time he intimated that queen victoria would be pleased if the new colony should adopt her name nothing could give the colonists more satisfaction and they waited with patience until affairs should be properly arranged in england eight sir charles fitzroy all this agitation however had not taken place without much irritation and contention between the people at port philip and their governor at sydney from whose authority they wished to free themselves sir george gipps had much to harass him and in eighteen forty six he was glad to retire from his troublesome position he was succeeded by sir charles fitzroy a gentleman in every respect his opposite by no means clever yet good-tempered and amiable he troubled himself very little with the affairs of the colony the sydney council managed everything just as it pleased sir charles was glad to be rid of the trouble and the colonists were delighted to have their own way as for the separation question he cared very little whether port philip was erected into a colony or not in eighteen fifty the news arrived that port philip was to be separated from new south wales and in the middle of the next year its independence was declared its superintendent latrobe was raised to the dignity of governor and the new colony received its constitution conferring on it all the legislative and other powers which had previously been possessed only by new south wales nine abolition of transportation it was during this period that the english government resolved on sending no more convicts to australia a committee of the imperial parliament held an inquiry into the effects of transportation and reported that it would be unwise to continue the system from eighteen forty two therefore there was practically a cessation of transportation although the majority of the squatters were averse to the change they found that the convicts when assigned to them made good shepherds and stockmen and that at cheap rates they subsequently petitioned for a revival of transportation but after some hesitation 
the British government resolved to adhere to their resolution to send no more convicts to Sydney. Van Diemen's land was still unfortunate. It was to receive, indeed, the full stream of convicts, but from 1842 Australia itself ceased to be the receptacle for the criminals of Great Britain. End of section 10 Recording by Linda Johnson, 